I have two goals this morning. We're not going to look at this entire passage of Scripture. We're only going to look at a small portion of it. My two goals are these. Number one, to magnify the glory of Jesus Christ in your eyes. And number two, to proclaim the gospel in a fresh way. For the last several weeks, I've come and I've had very practical, and I put it in quotes, practical words for you. And in the future, there will be much practicality that comes out of our study of Ephesians 4 through 6, because there are many practical issues in these passages of Scripture. But there is something for us this morning that at face value does not seem very practical. But it is the most important thing. It is the gospel, and it is the glory of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. I don't think I know a single person who doesn't enjoy a great story, especially one that is full of action and intrigue and involves life and death decisions and impossible odds. And if that story happens to be true, well... All the better. One such story played out when I was about 12 years old. It was late June, the year 1976. Our nation was about to celebrate its bicentennial. I remember this, having grown up in New Jersey and all of the the historic places there. The town I grew up in was 300 years old, and there was going to be a massive celebration that year. On the other side of the world, however, at that very time, the mood was anything but celebrative. On June 27th, an Air France jetliner with 246 passengers aboard was hijacked by Arab terrorists right after it lifted into the skies over Athens, Greece. You know the story. Armed gunmen, guns, grenades, hijacked, took control of the plane and diverted it to Libya where they refueled and took off again to land in Africa, in the country of Uganda. Upon arriving in Uganda, the terrorists, who were kind of a distant branch of the Palestine Liberation Organization, or the PLO, led by Yasser Arafat, unloaded all of the passengers into an old airport terminal and dug in for a long standoff against the nations of the world. On June 29th, they made contact with negotiators in France and demanded the release of 53 convicted terrorists held in Israel, France, Germany, Switzerland, and Kenya. The nations had 48 hours to comply with the terrorists, or they would blow up the plane and kill all of the hostages. One day later, July 1st, it was learned that the group of passengers, all of the passengers, were divided into two groups. One group was made up of various people from various parts of the world, and the other group, the smaller of the two, was made up exclusively of Jews and citizens of Israel. Soon the non-Jewish passengers were loaded aboard the Air France plane and sent to Paris, where they were released. And so it became increasingly obvious that the terrorist hostilities were focused exclusively on the nation of Israel. If something were not done, 105 Jewish men, women, and children were about to die. But what could be done? Uganda was a long way from Israel. 
How would a military even reach it, let alone reach it with such force and surprise as to overpower the, the hostage takers, the terrorists, before they killed all of their people? And even if a military force could reach the Ugandan airport terminal, the attempted rescue would most likely turn into a horrific massacre. So what could be done? Nothing, it seemed. Nevertheless, as I read it again this week, secret plans were put in place to set in motion what Israeli generals called a rapid assault, extraction, and withdrawal operation. It was dubbed Operation Thunderball. It would involve 200 men, a 200-man force carried by five C-130 Hercules aircraft who would have to land in the dark in an unlit airstrip. The soldiers would approach and be disguised in a black Mercedes limousine and some land rovers that would appear to be approaching as a Ugandan dignitary to the airport. The weather for flying at that particular night was horrible. The terrorists were well-armed and supported by the Ugandan dictator Idi Amin. The chances of success were small, but the IDF, the Israeli Defense Force, was willing to take the risk. Nobody knew this was even happening. In fact, the prime minister didn't even tell his cabinet until the planes were in the air, and then they voted on whether or not they should do it. When the time came for the assault, the the planes managed to fly for hours through terrible storms that were making even the soldiers sick. Somehow they managed to land on the airstrip within 30 seconds of their planned arrival. Before the plane stopped, the rear of the airplanes opened up and the limos and the land rovers rolled out, already slipping from the rear of the planes and sped toward the terminal. Under cover of darkness, the assault was able to hit the terrorists with complete surprise. Gunshots rang out from within the terminal. Glass was shattered and several were injured. But amazingly, within three minutes of landing, the airport, at the airport, the IDF had completely taken control of the terminal. All the terrorists were dead. Only two of the hostages were lost to gunfire. And the IDF only lost one man, which interestingly enough, Benjamin Netanyahu, are you familiar with that name? It was his brother, and he was the only Israeli who died. This event has gone down in history as one of the most successful planned and executed rescue operations of all time. It was cause for great rejoicing and celebration all over the Western world because Israel demonstrated that terrorist hostage situations could actually be dealt with decisively and successfully and with very little loss of life. It's an amazing story. This is one of my favorite true adventure stories, and I thoroughly enjoyed reading it again this week. But you know, the Bible tells a story of a military extraction and withdrawal rescue operation that is infinitely more spectacular than this. Paul refers to it here in Ephesians 4, in verses 8 through 10. We read about a POW rescue that we will call Operation Hostage Freedom. Follow along with me as I read, beginning in verse 8. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high... He led captive a host of captives and gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended on high, what does it mean except that he had descended into the lower parts of the earth? 
He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above the heavens so that he might fill all things. Now, how many of you could raise your hand and say, I know what that means. I know what that text is talking about. A couple? It's a difficult passage if we don't understand context. It's a difficult passage if we don't understand Israeli history and how ancient battles were fought and won and what proceeded afterwards. What Paul is talking about here is the fact that Christ has given gifts to men, and he's about to tell us what those gifts are. He's given the church, which is the whole context of this passage, the church. He has gifted the church with these treasures, these incredible gifts called evangelists, pastor teachers, apostles, prophets, and the like. And not only that, but a host of various other gifts, which we're going to talk about in the next few weeks. He's given these gifts, but before he mentions any of the specific gifts, he uses a loose quotation of Psalm 68:18 as a comparison passage to show how Christ, listen, how Christ received the right to bestow such gifts upon the church. Well, that's an interesting thing. Because if I were to ask you, how is it that Jesus has the right to bestow any gifts upon anyone in the church, your answer would probably be, well, he's God, isn't he? And that would be sufficient. The amazing thing is, though, when you study Scripture, there are reasons that are very precise and sometimes very narrow, and sometimes broad in their scope, but they're able to be described in ways that are beautiful and dramatic. And that's what Paul is doing here. He's making a reference that every Jew would have understood. Because we need to understand that in Psalm 68, we read a victory psalm, a victory hymn that was composed by David to celebrate the conquest of the Jebusite city And the triumphant ascent of the Ark of the Covenant up to Mount Zion, where eventually the temple would be built. Now, this bit of context is important because in ancient times, whenever a king won a victory over his enemy, he would bring home the spoils of war to his own people. Spoils, you know, such as silver and gold and clothing and horses and art and and pretty much anything the soldiers could grab of value. They would do. You know, you saw that in Joshua when they attacked uh, Jericho and the walls came tumbling down and God said, don't take anything. Or no, you can have anything you want from this city. But when they got to Ai, God said, the plans changed. This time, destroy the city, but don't take anything. I'm testing you. And nobody took anything except for Achan. And Achan took some things. He took some spoils of war that God had said, don't take. And you know the whole story, how God had Achan and his family killed. This was common. This is how nations became rich. They robbed their riches from other nations. And this has always been the case throughout the history of war. By the way, we see this happening also in the Roman Empire. To this very day, you can go to Rome and see a structure, a stone structure called the Arch of Titus, 
The Arch of Titus was dedicated to the General Titus. And guess what the General Titus did of significance to us? He was the general who in 70 A.D. attacked Jerusalem and destroyed it. But before they burned the temple to the ground, they raided it. And they took out everything that they thought was of value. And so if you look at the Arch of Titus, you see Roman soldiers carrying the candlesticks, the candelabras, and other things that they hoisted from the temple. Whenever a king would go and destroy his enemy, he would come home and he would parade his troops and he would parade the spoils of war. That's what David was writing about. Whenever an Israelite king would return from, from a war and victory, he would parade his army through the holy city of Jerusalem, right up to Mount Zion. It would be an, listen, key word, it would be an ascent up to Mount Zion for all the people to see and celebrate over. He would also parade the prisoners of war, those enemy soldiers that he had captured in battle and brought home as an unmistakable sign of victory. Not only that, but he would also parade through the streets his own people whom he had held, who had been held captive by the enemy and now had been made free. These men and women were kind of a highlight of the parade, in fact. These rescued prisoners. They were often referred to as recaptured captives. Prisoners who had been taken prisoner again by their own king. And so the phrase in Ephesians 4, he ascended on high, depicts a triumphant Christ a triumphant Christ returning from battle upon the earth back into glory, the glory of the heavenly city with the trophies of his great victory in his train. That's what Paul is talking about. This is the greatest military rescue mission the world has ever known. It is the entire gospel story compact down into 18 words. When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and gave gifts to men. That's the whole thing. That is the whole story, all wrapped up in one statement. And we don't normally think of the gospel in these terms, but this is the way God sees it. This is the way God has revealed it. You see, like the modern-day Israeli defense force who was willing to risk the lives of 200 soldiers in order to save 105 men, women, and children, God was willing to sacrifice the life of his own son in order to rescue the church whom he loves. Why was there a need for Christ to come and die? Because all of us were held hostage by sin. Every one of us. Isaiah says all of us like sheep. Dumb sheep. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has just, we just turned our own way. But the Lord has laid the iniquity of us all upon him. All of us were enslaved by our own sin. Because all of us were held hostage to sin. An enemy had entered into the world right after its creation, and pretending to be the friend of man, he proved to be man's greatest arch enemy. 
He conquered man and he held us in bondage from then ever since. And by the way, this is what the author of Hebrews is speaking of. In Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15, the author says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he, that is Christ himself, likewise also took part, took, uh, partook of the same. Why? That through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through, watch this, who through fear of death were subject to slavery all of their lives. That's how the Bible describes you and me before we came to Christ. Doesn't matter what you came out of. Doesn't matter the kind of lifestyle you were rescued from. The Bible says you were a slave. You were a hostage. You see, a man or woman in sin is a slave of the devil, whether they know it or not. They're in the dominion of Satan. And that's why when Paul was confronted by Christ on the Damascus road, he was told to go to the people and to the Gentiles, and this is what Jesus said, to open the eye, their eyes and to bring them from darkness into light, from the power of Satan into the, uh, unto God. And you find this all through the New Testament. In Colossians, he talks about us being delivered from the dominion of Satan into the kingdom of his, his beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's this military mentality. God rescued us. We were prisoner of war because of our sin. And he rescued us. Satan is the enemy, and he holds every unredeemed person in the world hostage to their sin, whether they know it or not. I know people who came to Christ out of almost every conceivable background. I know people who have come out of the drug culture. I know people who have come out of alcoholism. I know people who have come to Christ out of affluent careers. I know people who have come out, uh, to Christ out of long-term church membership and then got saved. All of them have essentially the same story. And every one of them is miraculous. And the same story is this, they will tell you. In a nutshell, my story is this. Once, once, I was captive by my sin. And I don't know how it happened. There I was, a hostage to the devil and to sin. I didn't even know it. I was born into it. But I was gloriously rescued. I was gloriously saved. So many people think that a life of sin is a life of freedom. Oh, is there any other, is there any greater lie than that? That a life of sin is a life of freedom. We see a young man and we say, oh, he's just sowing his wild oats. He's destroying his life. Don't make light of that. He's in bondage. He's been taken hostage. You say, well, he's just looking at a little internet pornography. Nonsense. He's endangering his soul. You say, well, she's just, she's really not interested in that married man. They're just friends. You better be careful because everything is at stake. Martin Lloyd-Jones once wrote, 
Think of the masses of people in the world today who are slaves to drink and drugs and sex and a thousand and one other things. They talk about their marvelous liberty and life, but they are poor, benighted slaves, as they soon discover when they try to set themselves free. Anyone who has ever tried to break free of a long-continued or long-practiced habit knows something about the slavery and the power and the bondage of sin. You know it, don't you? You know it. Whether you're saved or unsaved, whether you're born again or lost, whether you know the Lord Jesus or not, you know this is true. In your heart, you know it's true. And not only are we slaves to our sin and the devil, we are under the curse of the law. I mean, it's, it's really bad. It's worse than we think. Colossians 2, Paul calls the law of God, quote, the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, Colossians 2.14. And so on the one hand, you've got your sin. On the other hand, you've got the law that condemns you for your sl- sin. All who are slaves to sin are under the curse of the law, yes, but it gets worse. The unbeliever is not only a slave to sin and under the curse of the law, he is also under the fear of death. Under the fear of death. That's what the author of Hebrews just said. For those who are slaves to sin, the fear of death holds them in bondage all their lives. It's a tool of Satan to keep people in bondage to their sin. They're just afraid of death. And so God looked down upon us even when we were dead in our transgressions and sins. What a state. We were as good as dead. Worse than that. You were dead. He looked down upon us even when we were dead in our transgressions and sins and decided to perform the most daring hostage rescue ever conceived. And that's why Jesus came. That's why he came. He didn't come just to be our moral example. He didn't come to give us a pattern of love exclusively. He didn't come to show us um, theology, to challenge our morality. It wasn't for any of that. All of that was secondary. Anything related to that was secondary. The primary reason he came was because the only hope we had of living, of breathing, in eternity, as if he could somehow come and rescue us. And when he was almost when he was almost ready to come, can you imagine what it would have been like to leave home? Can you imagine what it was like for him to say, Dad, I'll be back. In 33 years, I'll be back. That's why Jesus came. He came as a mighty warrior with orders from on high to defeat the enemy with weapons of divine power and free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. And so this is the gospel. This is the gospel. He came, disguised as a little baby. He was able to slip under the radar into the slave camp of the enemy without hardly even being noticed. And when he was, for a moment, noticed, 
And Satan got Herod to send his hordes in to kill him. And God sent down a special forces angel, as it were, to lead him away, lead him out of harm's way. And when he was 12 years old, he made it clear that he understood perfectly well why he was on earth. When his mom and dad lost him in Luke chapter 2, they finally found him in the temple and they said, didn't you know that I had to be about my father's business, Joseph? At the age of 30, he, we find him in his first firefight with the devil in the wilderness. For 40 days and nights, he was in single mortal combat with the devil, the chief enemy. And then consider the Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes and doctors and the Mosaic law. His entire adult life was a continual battle for the safe rescue of God's people, those whom God loves. And then came the terrible night in the Garden of Gethsemane when he came face to face with what this operation was going to cost him personally. You think there wasn't battle? Sweating great drops of blood? He fell to his face and he cried out, Father, if there's any way, if there's any other way that this cup might pass from me, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. He knew the objective. He knew what was at stake. He knew his orders. And he carried them out to the full. In the words of the apostle, he was obedient to death. Obedient unto death even death on a cross. At Calvary, not the church, but the hill for which our church is named, at Calvary, all hell literally broke loose upon him. The enemy launched its fiercest attack on the Son of God. The devil summoned all of his minions to attack him thinking that if he could kill Jesus, he could get rid of him. The irony is that as they were killing him, he was destroying them. As they were bruising his heel, he was crushing their head. This is the victorious Christ on his victorious cross. Winning a victorious battle in order to rescue me. I tell you, it's amazing. And we are dull of heart. And we are slow to understand. And slow to see the glory of the gospel. We wake up in the morning and we crack our Bible open and we say... I'm going to do my duty today. And that's not what God gave us the Bible for. He gave the Bible. You know why it's called the Revelation? Because there's two things that it reveals. It reveals your heart. It reveals my heart. And it reveals God. And as we look into the Bible, we should look as like a mirror reflecting our own hearts. And we say, 
that is so disgusting. I'm sick over what I see. And then we turn the page and we look at a a, a small passage like this. And instead of skipping over it, we're supposed to look and say, God, show me the glory of Jesus here. And we look and we say, it's the most glorious thing I've ever seen. You want practicality from the Word of God? It doesn't get any more practical than this. I ask you, why do you crack your Bible open in the morning, in the evening, whenever you do that? Do you do that? Some of us don't even do it. Why do you come to church, you would say, to hear the Word of God preached and to worship? Why are you coming to hear the Word of God preached? Is there something about yourself that you need to see? Is there something about Jesus that you need to see? Those are the main things. Those are the main things. All the other stuff is important. Learning how to have a marriage that honors the Lord, that's important. Learning how to train your kids, that's important. Learning how to, to be unified in the church. You know, a few weeks ago I gave you eight disciplines to help build holy habits in your life. That's important. It's all secondary. Jesus is primary. And we spend precious little time glorying in Him. I don't know where I am in my notes. When Jesus finished his mission to earth, every enemy that could hold God's people hostage were defeated. And having completed his mission, this is what Paul's getting at, when he completed his mission, he rose triumphantly and ascended from earth back to heaven. Now, as Paul said in Philippians 2, God highly exalted him. I don't think we get the military picture when we normally look at that. We don't see God exalting him as a returning victorious general who just waged and won the greatest battle in history. God highly exalted on him and bestowed upon him a name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every other knee will bow of those who are in heaven and those who are in earth and those who are under the earth. And every tongue will confess what? Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. God honored Jesus like a mighty, victorious general coming home from battle. As Paul says in Ephesians 4, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives. That is, he captured the enemy's captives. He captured the enemy's captives and brought them home. Every time you hear of someone in Iraq, one of our men, or one of our people, being rescued, they should remind you of the gospel. They should remind you not just of the glory of our military, but the glory of Christ.
the glory of Christ. That's God's description of the birth of the church. This is God's description of the birth of the church. There's argument about when did the church begin? Did it begin uh, when Jesus died? Did it begin when he rose again from the dead? Did it begin at Pentecost? We can argue about that. I don't know why we would argue about that, but we do. But here's God's description of the birth of the church. How did this mysterious and miraculous community of diverse people ever end up coming together? Jew and Gentile, black and white, Hispanic, Asian. How did we all end up coming together? How did we become the church? Answer, by the militant intervention of Jesus Christ upon our hopeless bondage to sin. And there's something very practical that comes out of this. Dare you now play fast and loose with sin? Dare we now take our temptations and not address them harshly? Do we not take Jesus' advice, his command? If your eye offends you, gouge it out. If your hand offends you, cut it off. It's better to go to heaven with a missing hand than to be thrown into hell. What's he saying? You better deal ruthlessly with your sin because God hates it and he sent Jesus to destroy it. Why are you making friends with the terrorists that would kill you? We don't see sin that way. If we did, we would be more holy. There are two objectives Paul has here. One is to reveal to, to us how precious the church is to God. All through the study of Ephesians, I've tried to, I've tried to set that before you as, as, as on a platform, as on a platter, as framed in, in, in burning lights for us to see the glory of the church here. That's one of Paul's objectives. He wants us to see how precious the church is to God. How precious is it to God? He's willing to do everything, everything and anything to rescue her, to form her. And so the one object is to reveal to us how precious the church is. The other is to reveal how glorious Christ should be to his church. We talk very little about the glory of Christ except for flippant phrases like, praise the Lord. Jesus is Lord. Other phrases that we throw back and forth. We pray in Jesus' name. And our minds aren't engaged and our hearts are not aflame. And then we talk less about the glory of the church. And we think it's just this thing that we can take or leave, like kind of like going to the movies. You know, what, what theater do you go to? And what church do you go to? There's, there's just not, you know, it's not the way God sees it. He died for the church. I firmly believe, I've said this before, I will say it again. I hope it's not controversial. I think the only thing God is doing in the world is building his church. 
He's building his church. It should be precious to us. Now, a lot of people get hung up on verses 9 and 10. Briefly. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. Listen, all Paul is really saying here is that when you read Psalm 86, from which he got the previous verse, it talks about the king who ascended. When you read about that king who ascended towards Zion, Mount Zion, where the temple would be built, our thoughts should focus on something infinitely more glorious than a victorious king of Israel walking up Mount Zion to the temple. There's something bigger here. There's something greater here. Paul's saying don't miss the significance of this picture. It's a shadow. The substance is Christ, he would say in Colossians. Don't miss the significance. Every time you look at a passage of Scripture in the Old Testament or in the New, we should be asking, what can I learn about Christ? What can I learn about the glory of Jesus here? And Paul says, ooh, I got one. I got one. Uh, Psalm 86. 68. What is it? 60. 86. (laughs) Psalm 86. You remember that verse? And he quotes it loosely. It's not a direct quote. And then he pulls it in to the whole context of talking about the glory of the church and Christ giving gifts to men and how did he earn the right to do that? He's saying don't think of it in terms of a human warrior climbing Mount Zion with his armies behind him. Rather think of it this way. Think of it like Peter told you to think of it. You people who are a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people for God's own possessions, so that we might do what? Proclaim the excellencies of Christ. You really want to learn how to do that? Then when you read your Bible, say, God, show me the excellencies of Christ here. And so when you read this verse, he's implying, Psalm 86, rather than seeing a human king coming up to Mount Zion with his armies in his train, we should think of the one who ascended victoriously into heaven itself after having descended an incalculable distance from heaven to earth in order to conquer the enemy and rescue all who would believe. Always, 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 Paul pointed us back to Christ. I think you could sit down with Paul and he'd say, let's talk about the Bible. Say, okay, what passage do you want to talk about? Doesn't matter. Pick a verse. We'll talk about Jesus. Anywhere, Revelation, Malachi, Psalms, Proverbs, he's everywhere. You pick the verse, and I'll tell you about Jesus. Jesus did the same thing, by the way, on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection. You remember that? The two disciples are going home. They're forlorn. They, I mean, they're devastated that this guy they thought was the Messiah, now he's dead. And they got him in the tomb, and the Roman guard is there, and the seal, and... and We must have been wrong. And Jesus appears and starts walking down the road. He says, why are you so upset? And they say, are you the only one in Jerusalem who doesn't know what just happened? 
And Luke tells us from that moment, the Lord opened the Old Testament and began revealing to them how the Christ was to come and die for them. That's what these verses point to. And by the way, to what height did Jesus ascend? Well, he tells us. He who descended, verse 10, is himself also who ascended far above the heavens so that he might fill all things. You know what that means? Jeremiah talks about the Lord filling heaven and earth. The Lord fills heaven and earth. If you'd like to read A.W. Tozer, A.W. wrestles with that and he says, wait a minute, how can God fill heaven and earth? That kind of makes heaven and earth sound bigger than God if God fills it. And A.W. Tozer says, no, 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 you don't understand. God fills heaven and earth like the ocean fills a bucket that has sunk to the bottom of it. He fills all things. What's he saying? When he ascended, he sat on the throne of God and took up the place he left 33 years before in filling everything with the Father. That's who Jesus is. Do you see what he's getting at? He's telling us, glory in this Christ, glory in this Jesus, glory in your Savior. Think about the gospel. Think about what he risked. Think about what he gave up in order to save you. And then realize how glorious he is and how precious is the church. And then worship. Worship him. I think there is far too much emphasis given in the church, to fixing our marriages and disciplining our kids and learning how to manage our money and far too little time focused on how do we worship Him? And the main thing becomes no thing at all. And the secondary things become the main thing. And the church misses it. The church misses it. God forbid that we should miss it. God forbid that we should make somebody's book or somebody's idea or somebody's program the main thing. Christ is the main thing. He's always the main thing. The Lord Jesus. How is it that Jesus has the right to give gifts to the church? Well, perhaps it's enough to say simply that he is God. But more than that, he is the great victorious warrior of heaven who came to earth to conquer the enemies of the church, to set her free from bondage and to bless her with gifts suited to making, making her all that a bride should be for her groom. I tell you, the greatest adventure story of all time is how the captain of the armies of God miraculously rescued his people without losing a single soul. He realized that? Jesus said that in John chapter 18. All that the Father has given me, I have lost not a one. 
I led my armies down to the earth. I, the chief general, I conquered the enemy. I rescued them from their hostage situation. And when I got home and we counted heads, I lost none. And there are more to be rescued. And I will lose none of them. Not a one. This is the greatest story ever told. It's the greatest story ever told. And we spend so much time being entertained by other things that compete with the main thing. Oh, that God would use his precious word to make the main thing the main thing once again in our hearts. Father, that'll take